Hey, Hoopheads. Once you finish listening to this episode, be sure to check out the rest of the Hoopheads Podcast Network for even more great basketball content. Hey, guys. My name is Matt Issa, and I have dedicated the previous eight months of my life to answering one monumental question. Who are the 10 greatest players in NBA history? My personal journey has led to me consuming shelves of books, hundreds of hours of game footage, endless pages of Excel sheets, and conducting over 70-plus interviews with various coaches, players, executives, and media members. At times, this research led me to more questions than answers. How does one account for the different eras? Which means more, one player's three-year peak or another's sustained longevity? What are the appropriate criteria for evaluating something as abstract as greatness? But in the end, I came out with what I believe to be the most thorough and well-researched top 10 list yet created in human history, at least for NBA basketball. I then took that list and turned it into the six-part podcast series you're listening to right now. So without further ado, I give you the quest for the best. Whatever happens, I want you to know. So what is the quest for the best? Well, I will tell you that it's definitely not the quest for the GOAT. At the time we were producing the trailer, I told my buddy Nigel that I wanted to call this project the quest for the goat, and he gave me that, what the fuck did you say, this is why we don't let you do anything creative look, and then proceeded to berate me for being unimaginative and told me to call it the quest for the best. So if you hate the name, please take it up with him. In all seriousness though, the quest for the best is a six-part podcast series about the 10 greatest players in NBA history. The set of the series will go a bit like this. The six parts will be called chapters... I'm calling them chapters because I fancy this project to have a sort of true detective anthology type vibe where each episode is like a contained story where we focus on a different set of characters following the same thematic and critical standards. Anyway, chapter one, the episode you're listening to at this very moment, will be like our drink stirrer. Here, I will break down my methodology, my criteria, talk about some of my interviews, and then reveal my honorable mentions. Chapters two through five will discuss two players each, starting with numbers 10 and working our way down from there. So, for example, Chapter 2, which, by the way, is out right now, and you can listen to it immediately after this episode, will be about numbers 10 and 9 on our countdown. Then, Chapter 3 will be about 8 and 7, etc., etc., etc. Finally, we have Chapter 6, where we do a detailed analysis of two guys who, I'll refrain from naming explicitly for the time being, but I will say often find themselves cited as the two main candidates in the GOAT debate. At the end of Chapter 6, I'll reveal who I believe to be the greatest player in NBA history, and hopefully everyone will be satisfied enough where I can walk through the parking lot of my local LA Fitness without having to have my head on a swivel. Or we could have the absolute worst case scenario play out here where whoever ends up being number one in the quest won't ultimately matter because 13 people ended up listening, my roommates print out a snapshot of my Buzzsprout account with the 13 downloads on it to hang it up in the living room of our apartment, And then I can't go grab a cup of coffee in the morning without being reminded that I'm an idiot. So yeah, there's a lot riding on this one. Okay now, time to address the lingering question that's on everyone's mind. 
Who the hell is this Matt Issa character, and why should we even listen to his opinion? Like, is he even qualified to do this? And honestly, absolutely not. I was cut from the JV team my sophomore year of high school. Whether or not that was deserved is open for interpretation. It's a different story for a different day. And the extent of my on-court basketball experience is participating in Michigan State's IM Basketball League, where I once proceeded to take a two-hour walk home in the rain as a form of self-inflicted punishment following a bad game. I walked through four puddles that day. I also have no coaching experience, although I was once offered the Jeanette Junior High 7th grade girls basketball position, which I had to reluctantly turn down because my mother wouldn't let me drop out of college in order to free up the time for me to properly dedicate myself to it. Looking back on it, it's a real shame she wouldn't let me because I probably would have implemented a really modern pick-and-roll-centric offense that would have stymied opposing defenses. So, what do I have going for me here? Honestly, more than one would think for a guy who got cut from his high school team. For starters, I have 15 years of basketball viewing experience, the ability to recall almost perfectly the most bizarre and random events, and most importantly, I am one of the singularly most obsessive people you will ever come across. Throughout my life, I often spend months, sometimes even years, compulsively obsessing over a certain goal or activity, often to the point of near self-destruction. Anyone who knows me will tell you the same story. Everything I've picked up over the years, I have done so in an obsessive manner. Whether it be working out, collecting sneakers, watching prestige TV. There was even this one time a few weeks ago where I ate 53 icebreakers in one hour while waiting for a transit fan at Home Depot. I know that's not really obsessive, just kind of weird, but I still really wanted to share the story. You can think of me as Jake Gyllenhaal in the movie Zodiac. Actually, scratch that. I'm definitely more like Robert Downey Jr. in that. I definitely end up drunk and alone in some houseboat somewhere. But in this case, my obsessive nature has worked right to my advantage. As I spent the last eight months, as I said, singularly focused on consuming hundreds of hours old game footage, scouting reports, analytics, Bud Light Platinums, Zin pouches, literally all of it. All in order to create a list that I feel most thoroughly captures the essence of individual excellence in the sport we all love so dearly. I have spent the last few weeks and months leading up to this billing this project as the most objective top 10 list ever created. But in reality, a list of this nature can only be objective to the criteria it's based on. After all, as Clayton Crawley says in his YouTube series Making the Case, the art of ranking the greatest of all time is a subjective thing, based on whatever the ranker deems as greatness. So, when I call this the most objective top 10 of all time, I mean it in the sense that it's the most subjective to the criteria system I have established, which I deem to be the most inclusive and holistic way of evaluating players. Now, you might ask, what is this ultra-scientific, foolproof method I have spent the last eight months cooking up in a lab in the middle of Albuquerque, New Mexico? It's one word. Aw. Yes. Aw. Spelled with four A's and two W's. Like when people see an infant child eating something and then the idiot kid spills it all over themselves. I was originally going to compare it to when you bring your buddy who just broke up with his girlfriend to the bar and you start telling girls he's having a hard time getting over it. But in my experience, girls don't exaggerate the A as much with grown men as with small children. And I needed that extra A. So yeah, kids, spilling food, lonely nights at the bar. Please don't stop listening. I'm unemployed. Cool. We'll be near the in and out Shut the fuck up, Donnie. Now, if you're somehow still listening, let me break down the acronym for you. AW stands for Actual, Analytics, 
accolades, anecdotal, why ahead of, and why below. So I believe that in basketball, there are four different types of arguments you generally make, hence the four A's included in the acronym. Actual is, as the name implies, where we go down to what actually happened on the court. As Bob Ryan constantly reiterated during our interview, I saw what I saw and I know what I know. This is where those hundreds of hours of watching old game footage finally pays off for me. In this section, I will give you a scouting report of each player, breaking down the strengths and weaknesses of their game and how their specific set of skills contributes to championship basketball. And then there's that semi-controversial analytics portion. For the record, it's not really possible to be pro-eye test and anti-analytics because, as my buddy Jackson Lloyd told me during our interview, the numbers see every possession. And he's absolutely right. Most of these dreaded analytics people talk about are just a reflection of the events that occur on the hardwood. So it's cool to use them. Now, accolades are interesting because award selection is prone to the same politicking and heuristics inherent to any human institution. I mean, just look at Spike Lee only having won one Oscar award total in his career. Yet, they need to be acknowledged because, like anecdotes, they provide a snapshot of how a particular player was perceived among the players of his era. For this section, we will be relying heavily on the statistic I created for this series, Adjusted Osaki Score. I won't go into too much detail about the methodology behind that stat right now, but if you want to learn more about it before the next chapter, I suggest checking out the brief article I wrote outlining the stat, which you can find a link to in the description of the episode. Finally, we have our anecdotal argument. Here I make the Allen Iverson, this guy impacted the game far beyond any number you will find on the box score argument. This is where I do my best Jack McCallum impression and unleash the many great quotes and stories told to me throughout the 70-plus interviews I conducted for this series. My editor Ben pointed out that this section should probably be called the narrative section rather than the anecdotal, but it fucks up the whole awe thing, so we're just going to pretend that anecdotal is the appropriate term here, but it's really not, so just go with it, guys. I included the why ahead of and why below portions for two reasons. One, because I absolutely hate reading any list that doesn't provide a specific reason for why this player was specifically better or worse than the others who were ranked before or after them. And two, similar to the anecdotal thing, because I feel the acronym AW sounded just a tad bit more professional than... But that's just me. Now, as I alluded to earlier, I do have 15 years of basketball viewing experience in my back pocket. That is a pretty sizable amount of knowledge and experience... But the NBA is now over 75 years old, which, by my calculations, means I was only present for about 20% of it. So, to make up for my lapse in knowledge, I have reached out to and interviewed every individual involved with the game of basketball who would give me the time of day. In total, I ended up conducting about 70 interviews, all of which offered me incredible amounts of insight and perspective that helped guide my analysis. Here are some questions that these discussions centered around and some answers that are going to help us navigate through the next five chapters. The first question I asked many of my interviewees was pretty simple. How do you go about comparing players from across different eras? And there was one notion that many of them suggested I take as my starting point. Comparing players different eras, that context is super important. To consider the context of the era of which they played in. I think that that context is important. Context. Because context is so important. So yeah, context is key here, folks. You need to take into account the different factors and conditions each player dealt with during the time period in which they played. 
Yeah, the Big O averaged a triple-double for the first five seasons of his career, but you also need to understand that the game was played at a breakneck pace and there were far more possessions available to players at the time. Another important piece of advice for comparing players from different eras was given to me by SB Nation's Ricky O'Donnell, who basically told me that you can't compete against ghosts, you have to think about how a player dominated their specific era. So please keep that in mind, folks. Another question I would ask was, if the longevity threshold has been met, what matters more in an exercise about the greatest of all time, peak or longevity? A difficult question, and one which the answer to will decide where a lot of the guys I am considering will ultimately end up on the spectrum. With such a high-stakes question, I decided to ask for advice from the NBA version of Bill James and current assistant coach of the Washington Wizards, Dean Oliver. Uh, you know, Bill James tried to answer this one years ago, too. Um, and I think what he did is he did use kind of basic look at, I think, a player's best five years. And that I thought was a pretty solid thing to do for baseball. And, and frankly, I don't think it's a bad thing to do for basketball as well, uh, even the number of years. Five years is, is a pretty decent number in terms of five-year run I mean, for a player in the NBA, a great player. Uh, that's, that's worthy of looking at. Um, I think under five years is, is too short. I think if you go to seven, eight, or nine, or those kind of, I think that ends up, um, I think that can end up giving you problems as well because you end up with guys who have injury and you don't necessarily want to hold that against them. A brilliant response. There is absolutely no way anyone could build a good enough argument to refute that point, right? I thought that too. Then I heard Sean Grande, Celtics play-by-play announcer's response to that very same question. Yeah, it's a great, uh, when I was a kid, uh, as a hockey fan, this was the Wayne Gretzky, Mario Lemieux conversation. Because you knew, look, Lemieux was doing things at his peak that Gretzky wasn't doing. And he had the size, he had different physical attributes in the way he was sort of changing the game and dominating the game. And it was fascinating. One of them, you know, Lemieux would miss, you know, he had the cancer issue. He had other injury issues. He would play 40 games one year. He'd play 30 games another year. Uh, I tend to, you know, there's no, again, no right or wrong answer. If I'm a 60-40 lean, I'm leaning towards the longevity because I was sort of raised in the Doc Rivers, in the NBA Doc Rivers environment of the number one ability of an NBA player is availability. Well, fuck. Sean cited Doc Rivers. Maybe longevity is the way to go here. Man, I'm telling you, give me the peak every time. Give me the peak every time because, you know, yeah, Tim Duncan made it to, what, um, 19 years. KG made it to um, 19 years or something like that. But the version of KG that you cared about was the one who won an MVP in Minnesota and went to Boston and, and immediately um, transformed, helped transform a team that missed the playoffs to its NBA champion. You know, the version of Tim Duncan that we really, you know, are like, Tim Duncan was, was, was great, you know, arguably the greatest power forward to ever play the game was when he was winning finals MVPs, you know, regular season MVPs. And that was, a, we were talking about what a eight year, eight year part of his 19 year career. Damn it. Peak is what you remember about a player. 
starting to lean towards peak here. I think it's longevity because I think at the end of the day, you know, team building and, and the goals of these franchises who are trying to win is, is to give themselves an advantage to win every single year. Like that's, that's why tanking became a big thing, not to be a shill of my book, but I mean, the goal, like Sam Hankey's process, for example, is to, is to kind of compile a team so deep that it's just impossible for that team not to be competing year after year after year. And if that's the goal, if that's the goal of people in the league, I think then they obviously value longevity and the ability to be there year after year after year. I hope by now you guys are starting to pick up on the gag here. And I also hope it was at least semi-amusing. The supremely talented Jake Fisher from Bleacher Report makes a great point, as does the Athletics Law Murray. And I think the fact that great arguments can be made for both sides of this question speaks to the fact that there is no hard and fast rule here. It should be analyzed on a case-by-case basis. I also asked almost everyone how they go about determining the quality of a defender as, unlike offense, we don't have the luxury of having an excess of high-level analytics to help us decide with pretty reasonable certainty how good they are compared to their peers. I got a couple of really good responses from that. Here's John Krasinski from The Athletic sharing some advice given to him by Coach Tom Thibodeau. I talk to coaches all the time about this. Tom Thibodeau um, it one, is one of the best, uh, you know, in terms of he really looks at analytics and he really incorporates it. But anytime you talk to him about, you know, defensive RPM, you know, a, any kind of, uh, of metric that tries to put a number on this, he's always very skeptical of it because it, it just... It, it 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 is incumbent or it requires of whoever is establishing that metric a real real intimate understanding of what each team is trying to do from a schematic standpoint defensively and so sometimes you just don't know like what is Carl Anthony Towns being asked to do in this in this uh thing you know how is he affected by the breakdowns of the other players on the court like it's just really hard so um, you know, it, we've always said too, like, you know, coaches have always cautioned, Hey, just because a guy gets a lot of steals, doesn't mean he's a great defender. Like he could really gamble and, and put the integrity of the defense, you know, in a bad spot by, by going for steals and things like that. And sometimes we just don't, we don't ask our guys to do that. So, um, it, evaluating who, who is really good defensively is much more about just watching games closely and seeing who um, is making it really difficult on scores, who is in their, you know, is is right, you know, in the areas. And if, like, that's why I, Drew Holiday to me is, you know, a perfect example of a guy who, you know, maybe the stats don't necessarily jump out at you, but when you watch him play against leading scores and when you talk to other players hey who's the toughest guy that you have to go against drew holiday is always mentioned as one of the top ones um you know like watch what michael jordan did to you know to to some of the the best players that he played against in the playoffs in the olympics like all those things and the way that he brought in you know an intensity to that end of the court and 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 just kind of blew everything up From my conversation with Georgia State head coach Rob Lanier, it appeared to me that he seemed to be from a similar school of thought, referring to defense as the act of five guys against the ball. Coach Mike Woodson, notoriously Larry Brown's assistant on that famous 2003-2004 Pistons team, 
talked about basketballs being a group of guys making a commitment to get stops possession after possession. All of these responses do a great job of demonstrating that defense, first and foremost, is about five guys working together in lockstep, and that things like steals and blocks and one-number metrics on their own can be misleading. And while I will be referencing those things from time to time throughout the series, I will always put eye test and the ability to play defense within a team construct in front of everything else. All right. Now, before I reveal my honorable mentions and officially flip the switch from goofy bastard with a microphone to controversial take machine whose every words will be placed under a microscope by each and every one of you, there is a brief personal statement I would like to make. For those of you who are paying attention to the NBA Finals, it became something of a running joke among those on NBA Twitter that every time the camera would focus on Devin Booker, Mark Jackson would reference a conversation between Booker and the late Kobe Bryant where the Laker legend told the Phoenix star to be great. Most of us were never fortunate enough to receive direction from such a legendary figure. But that doesn't mean that there aren't human interactions in our day-to-day lives that we shouldn't use as a motivating force to help guide us through all of our endeavors. As I have endured the trials and tribulations that are part and parcel of a project of this magnitude, I often refer back to some of my very own be great moments that I have experienced along the way. Whether that be my roommate Nigel telling me on the day he decided to take the reins on creating the trailer for this series, that if I truly wanted this project to be my baby, I could not afford to cut any corners. Or SI's Robin Lundenberg telling me to have faith in myself and the power of my voice to convey my message. Or my longtime friend David somehow knowing to text me on one of the production days when I was at my lowest, telling me that he saw all the work that I had been doing and to keep working hard, brother. I want to take a moment to thank all of my friends, my family, the people who contributed to this podcast, and my loving girlfriend for all their love and support throughout this process, and for always reminding me in their own ways to always be great. And now that I'm done playing the world's smallest violin, it's time to give the people what they came for. It's officially time to let the games begin. Hey, Quest listeners, we wanted to take a quick break from our journey to give a shout out to one of the sponsors of this limited series, Retroshaded. At its core, the quest for the best is 10 stories of extraordinary individuals overcoming great obstacles and defying all odds. That makes Retroshaded, a brand built on resiliency and the determination to never give up, the perfect partner for this series. During a rough stretch in his life, the company's CEO and founder, Trevor Macklem, was looking for his purpose. And at the time, the only thing that brought him joy was snowboarding with his brothers. He began obsessively researching the history of the sport to the point that he even started wearing retro-style sunglasses similar to the ones that one of the sport's pioneers, Craig Kelly, wore as he was snowboarding down the slopes all over the world. And after receiving a lot of attention while wearing them at a local resort, Trevor realized that there was an opportunity for him to find his purpose. But more importantly, he realized he had a chance to spread to others the sense of inspiration those sunglasses gave him. And just like that, Retroshaded was born. Fast forward to today, and Retroshaded now serves as a symbol of hope and determination for thousands of people all across the country. With over 30 different styles and colors to choose from, Retroshaded has something for everyone. Visit their website, Retroshaded.com today, and pick out a premium pair of sunglasses that are just right for you, without breaking the bank. Listeners of this series get an additional 20% discount by using the code QUEST20 checkout. 
Visit Retroshaded.com and join the community of hope and inspiration today. Now back to our limited series. All right, one more quick tease before I give you the official honorable mentions. The three honorable mentions I'm about to name are in no particular order. They're just guys that don't fall in my top 10, but I am willing to entertain an argument for them being included. Okay, now, I swear, no more bullshit. Strictly business from here on out. Remember, though, honorable mentions are not in order. This is a top 10, not a top 13. (sighs) All right, now that's out of the way. Let's get into those honorable mentions for real. Honorable mention numero uno, Kevin Garnett. This may come as a massive shock to some of you who probably thought Kevin Garnett was a Hall of Famer, but not someone you consider one of the 15 greatest players that ever lived. Well, I'm here to tell you, Kevin Garnett is worthy of such lofty praise. The poster child for the not-even-all-time-great-players-can-carry-bad-teams-to-championships movement, Garnett's unmatched loyalty to Minnesota cost him as he was stuck hemorrhaging ring capital while his incompetent front office couldn't hold on to potential high-level difference makers like Stefan Mawberry, Chauncey Billups, Rasho Nesterovich, and Tom Gugliotti, while injuries hampered and prematurely ended the career of promising guard Terrell Brandon. I will go more in-depth on why he doesn't get the top 10 nod when we discuss other great big men, But for now, I just want you to know this. If you had to physically apply to be included in the quest for the best, Garnett would confidently walk into the room and drop his resume on the table. And it would look like this. Top five defender all time. Big man like size combined with guard like quickness. Passing ability on par with point guards like Tim Hardaway Sr. and Kevin Johnson. Goat level defensive awareness and rotations. And the proud owner of the highest running motor in NBA history. Kevin Garnett wouldn't be allowed admission into our legendary list, but God damn it, would he get a longer look than almost anyone in NBA history. Honorable mention number two, Steph Curry. Author Ian Thompson said it best during our interview. Steph is like a boulder dropped into the water that changes the ecosystem. Everything is different because of him. Steph's incredible floor spacing, dynamic finishing ability, high-level passing, and undisputed claim as the greatest shooter to ever live already makes him one of the five greatest offensive players of all time, with a solid argument for the greatest offensive peak ever. He has a case as the most scalable basketball player in history. I truly believe that he could be placed on any NBA team ever constructed and make them better with his presence on the court. He will definitely be a top 10 player all time by the end of his career, maybe even top five, but I'm leaving him off because he's still lacking in longevity, as my AOS stat suggests, in which he finishes 20th all-time, lower than any player that does crack my top 10, and his lack of a finals MVP, which I know is more voters' fault than anything, but still, every other player on this list has at least one of them. Okay, now for the last of my three honorable mentions. The final player we will discuss before the quest truly begins, and the one that has the highest likelihood of getting me torn to shreds by the entire NBA community. Will Chamberlain. I can hear Bob Ryan screaming at me right now. This is the most QAnon bullshit I've ever seen. Will? Not top 10? What the hell is wrong with you? But Bob, and the rest of the angry mob holding pitchforks, please hear me out. Will? obviously deserves consideration for this list because of the accolades, 8th in my AOS stat, massively underrated defense, 
and some of the best passing ability displayed from a big man of his era. But there are five major reasons why he isn't one of the 10 greatest players in NBA history. Reason number one, overblown statistical achievements. When you adjust for pace, his incredible career 30 points per game average only amounts to 25.6 per 100 possessions, which puts him well below all of the other all-time great big men considered for this exercise, with the exception of Bill Russell, who by the way is the certified Wilt Chamberlain stopper. Also, his incredible 50 point per game season only amounts to 38.3 points per 100 possessions. For comparison, Michael Jordan owns 11 seasons better than that, Shaq owns 5, Harden and Durant both own 4, and even Allen Iverson owns 3 seasons higher than that mark. Reason number 2? Teams' offenses were better without him. The Warriors were slightly below league average, offensive rating 1 point below league average with Wilt in uniform. The 76ers' offensive rating stayed the exact same when Wilt left despite them trading him for pennies on the dollar, while the Lakers' offensive rating decreased from 101 to 98 upon Wilt's arrival. Wilt monopolized the ball in a way that made it difficult for him to fit next to other high-level guys. It's also worth mentioning that when the 76ers did trade him in 1968, it's because they no longer wanted him, not because he forced their hand in any way. That's something that can't be said about any player in this top 10. Reason number three, Wilt falters in the playoffs. While it's expected that efficiency decreases for a player during the playoffs, Wilt experienced an even greater dip than most of the all-time great big men. His PER drops 3.4 points, true shooting drops nearly 2.5%, and his win shares per 48 decreases by 20%. All of these efficiency drops are greater than any of the big men I have in my top 10. Reason number four. Wilt was the second best player in an era that, for most of his career, had less than 15 teams. Remember what we said earlier, that the best way to compare players from different eras is how they ranked amongst their peers. Wilt was dominant, but he was never better than Bill Russell. We'll talk more about the statistical reasons why, but for now I'll leave you with this. Russell for his career was 87-60 and in head-to-head matchups against Wilt and 7-1 in playoff series against the Big Dipper. Now, I will say there are guys on this list that were probably the second or third best players in their era, but that was with 30 teams in the league, not 12. And the final reason that Wilt has left off my top 10 list is because of something I like to call the three modalities of Wilt Chamberlain. One of the most important parts of being an offensive hub is a player's ability to balance their scoring and passing. The best at this art are able to naturally blend their threat to pass with their threat to score and keep defenses guessing. Think Nikola Jokic this past season. Will never truly understood this practice. Instead, he would go into certain modes when he was trying to stat pad a specific statistical category, which would oftentimes bog down his team's offensive efficiency. These three modalities were his score mode, his pass mode, and his field goal percentage mode. From 1959 to 1965, Wilt was in score mode. This was peak black hole Wilt where he racked up his most prolific scoring seasons. Defenses would overhelp on Wilt because they knew once he received the ball, tunnel vision would kick in and his teammates would essentially become the live audience to the Wilt Chamberlain Show, a nine-part Hulu series coming to living rooms this December. From 66 to 68, Wilt went into pass mode. This is when, in response to media criticism about his abyssal tendencies, he set out to prove that he could lead the league in assists. In this mode, 
Defenses wouldn't bother sending the double team and would instead play the pass. Kind of like having a QB who can't scramble out of the pocket. You know he's not taking off and running with it, so you can send the extra linebacker out into coverage instead of leaving him as a spy in the box. Lastly, and probably the strangest of his little phases, was field goal percentage mode, where he drastically decreased his shot attempts from 15 in 1971 to 9 in 72 and then 7 in 73, with no significant decreases in minutes in these years, to try and lead the league in field goal percentage. It got to be so bad that in a 1973 game against the Milwaukee Bucks, Will pulled a Tony Snell and did not attempt a single shot attempt in 46 minutes because he wanted to keep a streak of 24 made field goals in a row intact. Classic Wilt. So yeah, the guy with seemingly no basketball credibility just told you that Wilt Chamberlain is not one of the 10 greatest players that ever lived. And with that scorching hot take fresh off the press, I hope I've done enough to make you all at least semi-curious about what crazy shit is going to come out of my mouth next. The beautiful thing is, you don't need to remain curious for long. At the completion of this episode, just grab your phone or whatever electronic device you may be using at this moment in time and look at the feed on whatever podcast platform you consume your oral entertainment and just click on the very next episode which is available right now. Anyway, until you build up the conviction necessary to do so, I will momentarily bid you farewell and I hope to see you next time for Chapter 2 of The Quest for the Best.